Paul. So today we're going to begin to unpack aspects of our of our vision and our mission. We're going to start thinking a little bit about how that applies to us as a church. And um, <coughs> you have to excuse my coughing. It is a throwback from a lurgy. Um, and uh, it's just one of these things. My lungs apparently are irritated. I mean, the rest of me is pretty miserable at times, but my lungs are apparently irritated from, from it all. So uh, if I do cough, don't feel sorry for me. I haven't got a sore throat or anything. Um, it's just a little bit annoying. So today, I want to begin part one of a two-part little message, and I want us to begin to look at some theology. Um, and so, you know, some sermons are really great for getting amens, and they're really good for that, and you can, you can preach some people go, away, oh, that was fantastic. Other sermons are a bit like eating your greens. And this is a little bit like eating your greens when we begin to look at theology. Barbie asked me the other day, she says, what are you preaching on? I said, oh, I'm preaching on the biblical arc of mission in the Old Testament. And she went, that sounds really boring. <laughs> I was like, yay. So here we go. So apparently I've got to juice it up a little bit, <clears throat> which I will do. Um, but what I, what I want to do is begin to look at an overview of Scripture. And let me introduce this in the best way I know how. But if you want to follow my notes and if you want to look at these up later... You can look them up on my blog, pastorkeithjackson.blogspot.com. Everything I'm going to say and a few things I'm not going to say are there as a bonus uh, as well in the blog. So you can go away and study this and see if I've made it up, but I haven't. Honestly, this is the word of God to us. So we have said in recent weeks that our vision is going to be making Jesus known to everyone everywhere. How's that going? Okay, That's, that's good. And uh, it's been really pleasing to hear in our prayer meetings, various uh, meetings we have on Zoom and in person, people praying into those. And we've said that one of our four priorities is mission. And that mission for us is going to be reaching out with the good news both home and away. And so what I'm going to begin to do for us is to outline a theology of mission because it's too easy just to take one text of scripture and apply it without actually getting a whole overview Now, I say that, I know that for some of you, as I touch on some things in the Old Testament today, and next time I speak, I'll be taking the New Testament, seeing how they marry up, because some, you know, we need an understanding of the old to really apply the new. We need that. And and from my perspective as pastor, there's so much ignorance about the Old Testament, because it's so hard, it's all about numbers and lists and visions and stuff. And, and how we actually going to get anything out of that. So we turn to our favorite books of you know, Galatians and Ephesians, and for some of us Romans, and we like, ah, oh, just dwell there, because that's where I think the promises are for me. But actually, we need to understand some of the theology behind some of the things we say. And so that's <clears throat> what I'm going to be doing today and next time. Now, for some of you, I'm not going to go deep enough. I don't know if you ever played with a kaleidoscope when you were a child. You know what I mean by a kaleidoscope? It's like a telescope-looking thing, and you look into it, and you have that kind of pattern, and you could change it, you could twist it, and the pattern would change. And what we do when we're preaching most of the time, it's like looking at the big kaleidoscope of theology, what the Bible says, and we point to one segment of it. That's what most preaching does. What we're going to be doing is stepping back and looking at the whole pattern. Isn't that exciting? See, Barbie, it's not boring. Oh, don't leave. (laughs) 
anyone wants to pray for our marriage, now's the time. (laughs) See, sadly today, it seems possible to have theology without mission. But I would suggest that it's impossible to have a mission without theology. For living theology begins with an encounter with the missional God. I'm quoting a few people. You're wondering who said that. That was me. Um, I thought I'd put that up there in case you thought that was someone even cleverer than me, which there are loads of people. And so when we begin to consider mission and what the theology of mission is throughout the book, we're going to, uh, I, I want to lay this you know, down. I won't refer to these uh, phrases often, but I want you to understand what we're actually doing. As we look at scripture, there are two things you can look at. You can look at the redemptive historical whole, which is a bit of a mouthful, which means mission must be understood as a central theme, the wholeness of scripture. And then there is the literary whole, which is how each book fits together and how, book, how each book fits within the Bible. We get a lot of teaching in our discipleship and our, our Christian lives about how each book fits together. But we don't tend to step back and look at the redemptive historical whole. And so that's what we're going to do. And so <clears throat> we're going to begin looking in the Old Testament. The missionary heart of God and his missionary purpose is revealed in Genesis throughout the Old Testament and New Testaments all the way to the book of Revelation. And the whole thing begins with God's broken heart. It doesn't begin with humanity. So really? See, the Bible primarily is not about us. It's about God and his relationship to us. When we begin to say the Bible is all about me, what we're doing is looking at one segment of that kaleidoscope of theology. But actually, if we step back, we begin to see that the whole Bible is about God's broken heart. And we read about this in Genesis 3, verses 8 and 9. And it says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. (coughs) Excuse me. And they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. This is after they have sinned. But the Lord called out to the man, where are you? Where are you? This is not about geography or information. God knows they're hiding behind a tree. It's the worst game of hide and seek you could ever have. God knows where they are, but he is expressing the ache in his heart Because it's about the relationship he once had that is broken. There is grief in those three little words. There's pain in those three little words of where are you? And so we begin to see that the theme of scripture is not us seeking God because our tendency is to hide. The whole theme of scripture is God seeking us now you say oh there's promises Keith about yeah if we seek him we will find him yes I know that don't point the arrow at one little segment today we want to look at the whole and the whole thing is about God seeking us aren't you glad that God sought you aren't you glad that Jesus can say you did not choose me I chose you and we paint it as though, oh, this is our, our choice, you know, and the, these kind of things. But actually, it all begins in God's heart. And those three words, 
he's beginning to say that we are dependent upon him. And because we're dependent on him, that separation from him brings death to us. He is seeking us. But even today, we're hiding too. Someone else has said this. They say, mission is what the Bible is all about. It's all about that. Now, you might say to me, well, Keith, we're created for worship. You know, worship is the most important thing. If there is no mission, there can be no worship. If God does not seek us out, we don't seek to worship him. Not in our natural, sinful inclination. We don't do it. Now, we all sit from the perspective of being born again, regenerated, the big theological word, justified by faith, sanctified as we're going through life, filled with the indwelling presence of the Spirit. We say, of course we seek God, but it began with him seeking us. It always begins with him seeking us. And so we begin to see this framework unfolding. And then we begin to come across Abraham in Genesis 12. The biblical story does not begin with Abraham. It begins before that in Genesis 1, <clears throat> Genesis chapter 1 through to chapter 11. We begin to see the universal dimensions, God's plan for the redemption of history, God's yearning, the parameters, the boundaries in which we will live. So many people will say today, oh, Genesis chapter 1 to chapter 11, it's just figurative. You don't have to take it literally. It's just a poem. It's just a story. Hmm. My friends, the promise of salvation is in Genesis 3. Jesus didn't die for a poem. He didn't die for a poem. We begin to see the parameters in Genesis 1 to 11 laid out for us that the God of Abraham and Israel is the creator of heaven and earth. That there is only one true God, that there is no other, that he uh, is the God not just of Israel, but of all nations. That he's the sovereign ruler over the whole earth. That all nations have descended from one created man and woman all over the earth. All peoples, though, live against him and in revolt and in rebellion against God. And the scope of God's purposes, his promises, his promise to redeem, to buy us back, is right there in Genesis 1 to 11. And so we begin to discover that God sought Abraham. We get to Genesis 12. I'm not going to take this. We're not going to go chapter by chapter through the Old Testament. It's God who chooses Abraham. Abram didn't choose God. He's minding his own beeswax. He's doing what he wants to do in life. God chose him. If you look through the Old Testament, you see that theme is there. God chooses Moses to deliver his people. God chooses Jeremiah who discounts his calling. God sought Isaiah and Jonah and everybody else who spoke for him. God is still seeking and God seeks you. He seeks you for his purposes. And so we read these words that were said to Abraham in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. 
and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed because of you. Wow. Now, <clears throat> I'm not going to spend the whole time looking at that scripture. But if you were to read further on in the New Testament, you would discover in Galatians 3.8, this is what the Apostle Paul, these verses, calls the gospel in advance. He calls it a, the promise in advance, the promise of the church, the promise of what's going to come. And if you were to um, read that, if you have a Bible, it says, Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. Genesis 26 re reiterates that, that promise. All nations will be blessed through you. In these couple of verses, you have a theological blueprint. A blueprint that tells you how the kingdom is going to be built. Years ago, I did a, a major building project with a church we were with, and it was really exciting and all the rest of it. But I had to look at blueprints. I wasn't doing the building, but they would lay out these blueprints of the multiple floors that we were building and all those kind of things. It was an exciting time. And I would go to the site virtually every day, and I would see the engineers poring over the blueprints and they were like, before we do anything today, we have to make sure that we're building according to the blueprint. And I, I, I really appreciate that because I had no idea what they were doing. But as the building took shape, I understood that what was on the drawing spoke about what was to be in reality. And this is the blueprint for God's plan of salvation. That through Abraham, all the nations of the world would be blessed. Now, when he says all nations, he doesn't mean a church in Reading in Barclay Avenue, you understand. He means all the nations of the world would be blessed through what is to come through Abraham. And eventually, Abraham, we know, has children, and the Jewish nation comes out, and we find the story of Israel. Now, there's much going on about Israel in the news. Oh, you've come back. Welcome, Barbie, back. That's all right. She's now embarrassed with me. And annoyed with me. So um, much is written uh, and happening in the news at the moment. I'm not going to dwell on what's happening in current affairs and the conflict at the moment. Because I know there'll be some of us saying, well, you know, we must declare this promise and that promise. No, we're stepping back to see the overview story. We need to remind ourselves what we're doing. We're stepping back for that. We've been praying for Israel and the conflict and everything else in our prayer meetings regularly. I don't think there's a prayer meeting go by that we don't lift up that nation to God. So we begin to find that Israel is formed. God chooses Israel to bring salvation to the whole world. Israel is designed to become a living example to the world of what it means to follow God and what it means when they don't follow God. And so they become a picture, not just of people, they become a picture of the preeminence of God, of the love of God, of the covenant nature of God, of the faithfulness of God, and of the restorative power of God. See, Israel, as a chosen nation, should always be understood in line with God's mission. Are you all right? Am I doing your heads in already? 
All right, your head's done in. We have to understand Israel in line with God's mission. Not a pet scripture that we might quote when we think something is going wrong in the world, but to understand why Israel was chosen. And we have to understand Israel in the context of covenant. Covenant brings privilege. Covenant brings obligations. You are privileged and blessed, but you must do certain things in line with covenant as well. It's the balance between having a gift and having a job to do. It's the balance between having grace and having responsibility in your life. And the whole thrust of the Old Testament is that Israel's choosing has to do with God's mission. Why? What is God doing? God is seeking. He is seeking. When we come to the New Testament, we'll see that Jesus, what's he doing? He is seeking. He came to seek and save the lost. It's the mission of God. It hasn't changed. And so the mission of God through Israel can be said to be universal. In other words, it applies to everyone. It's attractional. In other words, people could leave their pagan nations and join Israel. Isn't that exciting? No, I thought that was exciting. It had to be an intentional leaving. They had to agree to the covenants and the law and all sorts of things. But they were welcomed into Israel, into the fellowship of that nation. And it's also eschatological, which means it has an end-time reality. It means that the promise now is pointing to something in the future. Now, without getting ahead of myself in a few weeks I'll preach again, is that the message of the church is, is the same. It's universal. It applies to everyone. It's attractional. It's eschatological. And we'll get into how the church relates to Israel next time. But let's look at a verse and see this showpiece uh, uh, purpose of Israel. In Exodus 19, verses 3 to 6, it says, Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you out to myself. Where did God bring them? To himself. Why? Because God is seeking. He's wanting that relationship. He's pulling people towards himself. And he says, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of what? All nations, you will be my treasured possession, although the whole earth is mine. God is not saying the rest of the world does not belong to him. And you will be for me a kingdom, a priest, and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. What's God doing? He's saying, I'm going to choose you, I've chosen you, and I'm putting you on display. I want the rest of the world to be jealous of you. I want the rest of the world to see how our relationship works and crave that. I want the world to be able to understand what it means to be in covenant relationship with me. And to do that, I've chosen the smallest nation on earth to demonstrate the all-powerful nature of my presence in you and with you. Isn't that exciting? So God does this for Israel. He doesn't do it because he likes people who speak with a strange accent from the Middle East. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I need a people to demonstrate what relationship with me looks like. And that's part of our purpose today, to be a people who demonstrate what a relationship with God looks like. 
He's saying, you are going to be a light to the nations, Isaiah 49, verse 6, and Matthew 15, 14. Look them up in my notes. A commentator has said, it's a great quote, it's a matter of presence. The presence of the people of God in the midst of mankind and the presence of God amongst his people. Wow. That's amazing. That's a great quote. The presence of of God, of the people of God in the midst of mankind and the presence of God amongst his people. That's what Israel is about. That's what it's for. Now we know, you, you only have to read through the Old Testament to know that Israel doesn't always keep its end of the bargain. There are times when they're exiled. There are times when God says, because you haven't followed me, there's judgment coming. What's God doing? He's demonstrating to the world what it looks like if you don't follow me. It's not a punitive thing. It's to do with the broken relationship that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden where God said, where are you? When God exiles Israel, when we see those things happen, it's like that echo is coming again. Where are you? Where have you gone? What happened to the worship? What happened to our relationship? Why can't I demonstrate my love and power amongst you? Because you've turned your back on me and walked away. The Bible says he is mindful of our backslidings. And so Israel, we discover, is blessed to be a blessing. Psalm 67, 1 and 2 says, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us so that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among the nations. Israel, uh, the blessing came to Israel as a means to reach other nations, not as an exclusivity. The mission of God's people is to take their place in God's plan. And the horizon of God's mission is the ends of the earth. And so while we, and we'll maybe look at this a bit next time, where it says that Jesus came first for the Jews, then for the Gentiles. There is the firstness there because of God's covenant with Israel. The message of salvation through Jesus is still for Israel. He is the Messiah, the one they've waited for. But then to the Gentiles, and we become part of that reality, part of the seed of Abraham. We become part of that today, that we are part of the wider promise of God. And so Israel are given several things. They're given the Mosaic law, a law given to a particular people, Israel, at a particular place in Palestine, at a particular time for the centuries between Moses and Jesus. They're given kings. It wasn't in the original plan, but they ask in 1 Samuel 8, give us a king, and God grants that, and then graciously incorporates the kingship into his missional plan. For he says, out of you, from the throne of David, the kingship you've asked for, you will find the Messiah comes. God's wonderful, isn't he? I mean, he knew that was going to happen. But he's wonderful because he's saying, do you know what? I'll give you what you want. But there's going to be my outworking behind that. 
We see throughout the Psalms that God's missions to the nation is throughout. There were too many scriptures to put on the board for this, but if you look at my blog, I list loads of them there at the end. They're given prophets to bring the message, speaking of the end time event when God will rule over the whole earth, when the Messiah will come. And so for this reason, Israel first had to be first converted. The mission of God had to go to Israel first to fulfill the promises of God in the Old Testament. We know that hundreds and hundreds of prophecies were fulfilled around the birth, the life, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amazing prophecies. Things that Jesus himself wasn't even in control of. The manner of his birth, the manner of his death, how many days he'd be in the tomb. Jesus had no control over those things, yet they were all fulfilled through Jesus himself. I haven't put this in my notes, but statistically it's, it's like this. If Jesus could fulfill just, I believe, his eight prophecies in the Old Testament, the big ones, where he was born, how he would die, that he'd be raised from the dead. Statistically, this is what it looked like. If we could take, you've all, you, you've all seen a two-pound coin, right? I mean, if I asked you if you've all seen a 50-pound note, you'd be like, mm, you know. Some of you went, yes, amen, I'd take that, I'd claim it. But anyway, you've all seen a two-pound coin. If we were to take two-pound coins and spread them across the United Kingdom, a meter or so high, just... L- all over, so you couldn't see an inch of floor space anywhere. But we took one of those coins and we painted it red. And we hid it randomly amongst all those two-pound coins across the United Kingdom. And then we were to take one of you and say, right, we're going to take you in a helicopter. And we're going to fly you over the United Kingdom. And you're going to be blindfolded. And you're going to have a parachute, don't worry. And when you say yes, we're going to throw you out the helicopter. The parachute will automatically open. And where you land, where you first put your hand down, you will pick up the red coin. Statistically, because I could say it's this to the power of nine, whatever north is. Statistically, that's what it meant for Jesus to fulfill all the Old Testament prophecies. Well, actually eight of them. If you include the nearly 300 or so. It just becomes mind-boggling. I mean, my mind's boggled anyway. That's amazing. So when people say to me, oh, Jesus was just a fictional character, I'm like, (laughs) no, he is the one spoken of. And then we find in the Old Testament, are you still enjoying this? There's always a debate amongst pastors. Shall we give some meat and shall we really go for it? Or shall we just give a little bit of Nesquik, you know, chocolate milk? Strawberry milk, if you prefer. There was a, a flavor of banana milk, but that was awful. Don't know why you'd ever drink that. You know, a bit of chocolate milk on Sundays. We all leave a bit more content. But actually, we need to see the bigger picture. And then there comes to ethnic groups. What does this mean to the nations? Well, in Genesis 12, verse 3, when it's talked of there, the phrase, all the peoples, is a Hebrew phrase. I'm not going to try and say it. And in the Greek Old Testament, the translation of all, they they translate it mostly as tribes, mostly as peoples within the nation. But actually, it can be applied to even smaller than that. It can be applied to family groups as well. When you read about the sin of Achan in Joshua chapter 7, it's spoken there about the family, and the family is the same word used for tribes. In other words, the good news of the gospel isn't just 
you know, we, we have this picture that if a missionary or an evangelist goes to a nation that's never heard Jesus, stands on a street corner and preaches once, that gospel has been tu- uh, that nation has been touched by the gospel, therefore Jesus is about to come back. That isn't what scripture is saying. It's saying, actually, my gospel needs to permeate into a nation and begin to reach the smaller people groups within that. So from ethnic minorities to indigenous people to everybody, that gospel needs to touch every people group within it. That's exciting, isn't it? Because when I begin to look at that and I see the, you know, the, the 1040 window as it's been described and, and where Christianity has been suppressed, and, and I can't say much, but I know we've got missionaries working in Muslim countries. I know of a couple of missionaries who went to a certain country and they said to the missions department again, we may never see you again, but we're going to share the gospel and start planting churches in this nation. Um, and they're still alive, and there are several successful churches all underground in that nation right now. See, the gospel has to percolate, not just on the big evangelistic stage, but actually get a hold of a nation and go through the smaller groups of nation and into the families within that nation. And so we see that reflected in, in um, Psalm uh, 22, where we see all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of nations will bow down before him. The word they're speaking, not just of the big nations, but the ethnic groups within it. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over all the nations. So the hope is not that we would just go to all nations and that they would respond, but the families of peoples within those nations would respond at all as well. You see, the gospel is more than our superficiality. It is transformative. It changes a nation. It changes the way a nation is governed. It changes the way the poor are treated within that nation. It changes the way things are worked out in that nation. And that's exciting because that's the power of the mission of God. Why? Because he's still seeking. He's still seeking. He's still looking for those who will come to him. I haven't got time to dwell on it, but if you want to make a note of 1 Kings 8.41 and uh, Isaiah 56, uh, 6 and 7, you can compare those and you can see what happens when someone who is outside of Israel comes into Israel and how they're to be treated and how God treats them and how the human rights. So, I mean, we might look at it and say, oh, there's slavery and there's all kinds of things happening and all those sort of things. But when people joined Israel, they were given rights they never had in their nation, in their pagan nation. There is something that happens when the mission of God is accomplished in a nation. I thought I'd get at least an amen for that. He's still awake. Okay, five of us. This is what eating broccoli feels like, isn't it? It's on your plate. I don't know about you, but I eat the broccoli first so I can get to the meat. Does anyone do that? Yeah? Does anyone else cover their broccoli with cheese sauce to make it palatable? <laughs> it's nice, isn't it? This is a bit like broccoli, because we're like, well, it's on the plate. It's part of the diet that we're having this year. Okay, we'll go with that. All I can tell you is it's doing you good, even if you don't know it. It's doing you good. Jonah and missions. It's all right, I'm nearly finished. It only goes up to 400, the points. Jonah. <laughs> 
One of the most vivid confirmations and illustrations of God's saving purpose for nations is found in the book of Jonah. Now, the message of Jonah is not about a fish. There's been more debates about what kind of fish was it than there's been anything else. I think putting Jonah in a fish is tremendous plan by God. I think that's because three days in the belly of a fish, he's going to come out bleached. You know, when he's regurgitated on the beach. Have you ever thought about this? He's going to come out bleached. His hair might be falling out. His eyes are going to be bloodshot red. His clothes partially digested. And he goes up to these people of Nineveh and says, repent. Now, wouldn't you? <laughs> on, wouldn't you look at him and go, I don't want to do what he's done. I don't want to do that. It's not about the fish. It's about the message that Jonah was sent to give. We read two things here in Jonah 3 and Jonah 4. It says, when God saw what they did and how they turned around from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. Hallelujah. They had a revival. This is great news. But in Jonah 4 we read, he says, Jonah speaking to God, I knew that you were gracious and compassionate, Slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from saving calamity. In other words, I knew you would do that, and I don't like what you just did, God. I don't like what you just did, because I don't like the people in Nineveh. People in Nineveh were the most terrible people. They would capture people from Israel, and they would take them into slavery. And if they didn't obey, they would have these games where they would draw chariots over them, and the chariot would be pulling along uh, 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 like a a bar behind it that was, had spikes on, and the spikes would roll as it hit the ground. And they would lay these Israelites out, and they would roll these things over and over, back and forth, until their bodies were shredded, cheering at them, at what was happening. And Jonah's told to go to them. It's like, they're going to kill me. They're going to do away with me. It's awful. And then when God does relent, Jonah stamps his feet and says, that's not fair. See, what we all want is grace for ourselves and judgment for others. So, no, I don't. I'm a Christian. My friends, if there's the unforgiveness in our heart, what we're really saying is, or judge them, but be gracious to me. That was Jonah's main problem. The amazing thing about this, not in my notes, but the amazing thing about this, in response, the people of Nineveh repent, and they have a hundred years before the prophet Nahum comes. And prophesies a more detailed message of destruction. And at that point they refuse to repent. And they are destroyed. But there was a hundred years of grace. Because of one man's reluctant message. Now the story of Jonah then shows us God's plan. But Jesus in Matthew 12 says he is greater than Jonah. And so we have the mission of God in the Old Testament. The seeking of God. This desire for God. And what does this look like? If I just put it up into a graph for you there. We begin with God's wounded heart. We then go to Abraham being chosen. We then find Israel from Abraham as a signpost and an example to the rest of the world. Confirmed through the prophets Finally, the prophet Jonah, not the final prophet in the Old Testament, I know, but finally the prophet Jonah, speaking of God's message, setting up the New Testament. And in the first few verses of Matthew, we have the reflection of the Old Testament saying, this is why God did that.
my friends, you're part of a bigger picture. And you don't even know it sometimes. We think that Christianity is about my problems and the things that I'm going through and all that. And God is compassionate. He understands our weaknesses. We have such a wonderful Savior who understands all our frailties, all our weaknesses, all our temptations. There are so many blessings to being a Christian. But the story of God is bigger than us. The story of God is spanning the whole Bible and is throughout all history and there embedded in the Old Testament. And when I preach again in a few weeks' time, do come along. Don't be like, oh, he's going he's gonna to do that broccoli stuff again. Don't know if I can handle that, Lord. There's enough broccoli in my life. Come along, because when we match the new with the old... When we have the big picture of God's mission, the mission isn't just about an evangelist preaching on a gospel service. We have a bigger picture, and we begin to share with you a simple tool on how to witness to your friends, witnessing made easy. Is anyone like that? Who would like to have witnessing made easy? Some of you are like, oh, I don't care how easy it is. I ain't going there, Keith. Witnessing made easy, because when you get the bigger picture... And you realize all that energy and all that desire and all that passion of God at that moment when you're sharing your faith is channeled through you. Wow. You begin to say, I'm glad I'm part of a kaleidoscope. I'm glad I'm part of something bigger. I'm glad that God sought me. I'm glad that God is still seeking. And I'm glad that God has outlined it. So I can understand it, so I can grasp it, and so I can move forward knowing that the great cloud of witnesses, we quote that all the time, don't we? Oh, great cloud of witnesses. It's about what's on the screen there, my friends. Your great cloud of witnesses, right there. Abram's cheering you on. You'd be like, is he? Really? Yeah, Moses, because Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. He's cheering you on. All these great men and women of God are there cheering you on when you fumble over the phrases you should use and the things you should say to your friends. And the amazing thing is you are backed up by the whole of the Old Testament, the whole of the New Testament, and we are living in the time of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Now, was that too heavy for you? Are you okay? Do you feel like you can go home and say, I went to church today and I survived? Or do you feel like you went out, you can go and say, I feel a little bit stretched in my thinking today. I feel a little bit stretched. I think I need to look again. I need to accommodate more of God's plan in my life. That's what we're trying to do. The whole year won't be like this, but we need to make sure we've got a great foundation for when we launch forward. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you. No, don't clap now because that's like the donkey carrying Jesus into Jerusalem. <clears throat> But let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. Lord, this sometimes is so hard for us to see the overview. Lord, I pray for us firstly, we will commit as a church, as individuals, to reading the whole of Scripture, not just our favorite verses and our favorite devotion, but to actually commit to read through your word. Because when we do, we see this glorious tapestry of your mission. We begin to see the purpose behind your, your brokenness and sending Jesus. Lord, I thank you. Thank you that your woundedness brought us salvation. Your wounded heart in Genesis, Jesus' wounds on the cross. Lord, that there is that sense in which you are seeking us. And we thank you for the example of Abraham and Israel and the prophets. 
We thank you, Lord God, that as we look at these things, we realize we're not a small individual wherever we go. We're part of making and creating history. We're part of something bigger. Lord, I pray that anything that I've said that was not of you, you'll shelve that, but we'll get the seed of your word in our hearts. And we will run with that and we'll begin to understand there's something bigger than going on than we just see in our news. There's something bigger going on than we just see uh, politicians debating about and and courts debating about. Lord, we are part of your plan. Help us to cement that in our hearts. Help us to understand that as a people of God, you have called us to do great things for you even if the great thing is not always seen by us, but we know we're part of it. We pray you bless us and encourage us in our learning, in our development, in our discipleship. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.